Thank you, Pastor. And thank you for tuning in on the radio and on the live stream. And thank you for those that are here tonight. And we realize, of course, that there are some of you that just absolutely could not be here if you wanted to. And uh, uh, that's, why, that's why this church and so many others have now made it possible to listen other ways. And uh, we can talk about all the negatives uh, about COVID, but one positive thing, and it's amazing how the church learns from situations, more churches now have more things available for people who can't get out than they ever had before. And that's a blessing to you. Uh, and so we're excited about tonight's service and we're excited about what the Lord's going to do. Turn your Bibles, please, to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, and we're going to be in the 20th chapter of the book of Numbers. I did not lose the symbolism of the song that was sung, let the storms rage high and the dark clouds rise, they don't worry me. Uh, we are sheltered safely in the arms of God. Numbers chapter 20. As you get to Numbers chapter 20, as we travel, I think I've mentioned it already this week, we've actually preached in over a thousand churches over the last 28, almost 28 years now. And so uh, a lot of times we go there, we stay in a prophet's chamber at the church, or we stay in our trailer. And if we stay in our trailer, most of the time, if not all of the time, the church gives us a key to the buildings so that we can go in and out in case we have any kind of electrical problem, need to get to the breaker box and things like that. And so over the years, I've had the privilege or slash misfortune of being in church buildings when no one else was there. Now, church buildings when no one else is there, when no one else is there, are actually some of the scariest buildings on the face of the earth. If you've ever been in a church late at night when no one else is around, you find that churches make all kinds of odd sounds. There's creaks and squeaks and something stuff like that. Somebody told me one time it's the ghosts, uh, the ghosts of dead choir members that are haunting the building and all those kinds of things. But I've had the privilege of walking through a lot of empty churches over the years, and as you walk up and down the hallways, you end up in the, the Sunday school area, and you'll find that almost invariably in the Sunday school area, you'll find that some industrious Sunday school teacher, maybe the kindergarten class, first, second, third, whatever, one of those younger classes, has come up with a way, a simple way, to motivate their students, to motivate people to come to church, to bring their Bible, to bring visitors, to say memory verses. Now we know, as I mentioned the other night, if they're teenagers, the way we motivate them is with pepperoni pizza. You can get a teenager to do absolutely anything for pepperoni pizza. Remember one time I was the director of a teen camp in West Virginia. My nephew actually was my assistant director at the time. And we'd ordered all the kids pizza. And everybody had gotten pizza and then gone back in for seconds. And we ended up with five leftover pieces of pizza. Now you cannot announce to 75 kids, if you want one more piece, get in line. Because if six people get in line, you're in some pretty deep trouble. So we decided, as you do with teenagers, we decided that the five campers that did the five most disgusting things would be able to get those five pieces of pizza. I'll never forget one 13-year-old girl walked up. She brought a young man with her. His first name was Christian. He is six foot six. And so they walked up and he took his big old size 13 and a half tennis shoe and he lifted it up off the floor and he set it on a table right at the edge of the table. That 13-year-old girl got down on her hands and knees and licked the bottom of his shoe from the heel all the way to the toe to get a piece of pizza. Two things were accomplished. One, she got a piece of pizza. Number two, she made me a proud daddy on that day. 
That was my daughter that did that. She did not do the most disgusting thing. I will tell you, since there's not that many people in the auditorium, if you're at home, you might want to just get a bucket or something because this is kind of nasty. But every morning we would I have breakfast and we'd have cereal and we'd have juice and all that. And then when you got done, instead of throwing that in the trash can, you would dump it in a 55-gallon drum that had uh, a lining around it and plastic around it so it stayed, uh, it didn't leak and all that. So this boy walked up. Now remember, this is after lunch. He walked up and grabbed the 16-ounce styrofoam cup, walked up to that that had been out all, all day long, everybody else's backwash, everybody else's leftover cereal, dipped that cup down in there and drank that whole 16-ounce thing. To this day, it may be the most disgusting thing I've ever seen anybody do for one piece of pizza. Now, little kids like pizza, but they like something else. And those industrious Sunday school teachers have figured out that a whole lot cheaper than pizza, you can give them a little gold star. I don't know what it is about little gold stars, but kids love little gold stars. And you go from Sunday school class to Sunday school class all over the United States, what you're going to see is a, a chart up on the wall. It's going to have the names of all the kids written down like this, and it's going to have a grid coming down like this, and there's going to be, uh, came on this day, came on this day, brought a visitor, said their memory verse, brought their Bible, and there's always that one little kid that has one little gold star way over here in the corner, and then there's that other kid that looks like the Milky Way galaxy beside of their name because they'll do anything at all for little gold stars. If we're going to give out gold stars for the Old Testament of the Word of God, my friend Moses is going to get more gold stars than anybody else, I think. This man has been faithful when no one else would be faithful. This man trusted the Lord when no one else would trust the Lord. After the children of Israel have been delivered, as he's coming down from the mountain, the children of Israel have made a golden calf, and they're practicing immodesty, and they're practicing immorality, and they're practicing idolatry. When he walks down the mountain and sees them, after he's only been gone for a few weeks, they've all of a sudden forgotten the Jehovah God that led them out of Egypt and delivered them from the hand of the Egyptians and gone back to idol worship before Moses could even bring them the law of God. But Moses stayed faithful. He was faithful when Korah and Dathan and Abiram came to him and they said, Ye take too much upon you, seeing that all the congregation of Israel is holy. They said basically, these sons of Korah, that if you, Korah and his, and his associates, if you will, if you, uh, you ought to let us be in charge. We ought to be calling the shots and not you. And Moses said, Well, let's just let God make that decision. He said, Tomorrow you bring some incense off of your altar. I'll bring some incense off of my altar. And we'll let God choose whose incense he wants to accept. When they got there, all 250 of them, Moses gave them the rest of the rules and regulations of this competition. He said, now, if, if, if you're not the one that God wants, he said, if you die some normal death, then you'll know I'm not God's man. But if God do some new thing and open up the earth and swallow you, then you're going to know I'm God's man. The ground began to shake underneath them, all Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, the 250 princes that came with them. And the Bible says, all that appertaineth unto them went down live into the pit. The funny part of that story, though, is the Bible says this, the next day came the children of Israel unto Moses and saith unto him, Ye have killed the people of the Lord. First, Moses didn't kill anybody. Second, if God opens up the earth to swallow you, you weren't the people of the Lord. I don't care what tribe you came from. 
God is furious with this. He sends a pestilence into the land. They began to die as fast as you could snap your fingers. And Moses looks at his older brother and says, Aaron, run quick. Run as fast as your 83-year-old legs will carry you. Grab some incense off the altar and stand between the dead and the living and we'll see if God will stay the plague. And when Aaron did that, God stopped the plague, but not until after 14,700 of the children of Israel died that day. Moses was faithful when they complained about manna Moses was faithful when God sent brazen serpents, uh, to, uh, fiery serpents to bite them. It's Moses that has been faithful over and over and over. I've been with a lot of pastors, as I've mentioned, over the years. And I've met some guys that were great pastors. I've met some, uh, some men that uh, loved their church and gave their life for their church. But I've never met a pastor in my entire life that would ever even think about saying, you know what I'd like to do, Brother Harper? I'd like to go back and try pastoring those children of Israel. Nobody wants to pastor these people, lead these people that complain about everything. You look through your Bible, you'll find they complain about everything that God does for them and continue to question Him no matter how many miracles God accomplishes in their lives. Moses has been faithful the entire time. God has used him the entire time. God has spoken to Moses like he's spoken to nobody else. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh to his friend. And yet Moses, with all of these gold stars on his chart, we have this tendency nowadays that we have this, this attitude, Well, I've done so much for the Lord, I should be able to get by with a few sins now. Well, he's been serving the Lord for a long time. We can understand that he's got this problem in his Christian life. Have, don't we do that? That's not the way it ought to be. It doesn't matter how many gold stars you've accumulated on your chart. It doesn't excuse one single sin. And as you get to Numbers chapter 20, I want to preach you a message tonight that's entitled this, One Sin, Too Many. One sin, too many. God is going to judge Moses right before our very eyes. Even as you read this passage of Scripture, and we often make the mistake in our Bible preaching, and I'm as guilty of it as anybody else, we refer to people like Moses as Christians. Of course, they were first called Christians in Antioch. But if we're to define a Christian as someone who trusts the Lord, prays the Lord, serves the Lord, listens to the Lord, and, and, and draw that comparison, then by comparison, Moses would not just have been a good Christian. He wouldn't even have been a great Christian. At this point in time, as we read Numbers chapter 20, Moses is, for lack of a better description, the best Christian in the entire world. There's nobody alive at this time that has talked to the Lord more than Moses has. There's nobody alive that has obeyed Moses more than Moses has. There's nobody alive that the Lord has spoken to more than he's spoken to Moses. The simple truth is, if we look at everybody else on planet Earth at the time of Numbers chapter 20, Moses stands head and shoulders above them all as this monolithic prophet of the Old Testament. And yet in this passage of Scripture, God is going to judge Moses for one sin. Let's read our text this evening, Exodus chapter 20. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month. And the people abode in Kadesh. Now watch this with me. And Miriam died there and was buried there. There was no water for the congregation. They gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chode with Moses and spake, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. 
Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our cattle should die there? Wherefore have you brought a, made us to come up out of Egypt, to bring us in into this evil place? It is no place of seed, or of figs, or of vines, or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So thou shalt give the congregation, and there be strength. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Here now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and the beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. I want to preach you this simple message tonight, one sin too many. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin. The Lord and Holy Father, we thank you for this evening, Lord. We thank you for the safety and bringing those that are here. Uh, to the service tonight. Father, we pray for those that are at home and still safe. Lord, we just ask that you keep, uh, keep each of us uh, safe during this time, Lord, whatever's going on in the world around us, whatever's going on in the heavens. Father, we ask that you continue with your uh, unlimited grace to keep us safe, if it be your will. Lord, we ask that you bless this message tonight. Father, may those that are at home watching the message or listening to the message, Father, may they put other things aside. May this not just be something playing in the background while they do other chores around the house, but Father, may they give their undivided attention to the preaching of the Word of God as if they were in the auditorium. Father, I pray that you'll touch our hearts, that you'll convict us, that you'll mold us and shape us and make us in to the Christians that we ought to be. Father, have your will in your way. In Jesus' name, amen. As you get to this chapter of Numbers chapter 20, I want you to notice first the situation. I want you to notice the situation. We're going to divide it up into two main categories. On one side, we're going to put Moses and Aaron. On the other side, we're going to put the rest of the children of Israel. Notice a few things about the children of Israel as you get to Numbers chapter 20. The situation we see first, the people. The children of Israel, number one, watch this about them. They're unpraying people. They're unpraying people. You say, Brother Harper, what do you mean? Because no people on the face of the earth at this point in time in human history have seen more miracles accomplished through water and with water than the children of Israel have. Think about that just for a second. They have seen God turn water to blood and then turn it back from blood to water. They have seen God part the Red Sea. They have seen God already deliver water out of a rock in the wilderness. It's already happened once. Understand, they have seen God take, make water come out of a place where water does not come. They have seen God change the molecular structure of water. They've seen God make a wall out of water. If there's any group of people that when they get to this place, and they look around and they say, look, there's no water here, but wait, there's a rock. We should be okay. 
oh, there's some sand. If he could make uh, water into blood, then he could turn sand into water. God can do whatever he wants. What they should have said is, let's get together. Let's all have some men's prayer meetings and ask the Lord to send some water out of a rock or deliver us water some other way. And they could have said, let's get the ladies together and have a, a ladies' breakfast and all pray that God's going to deliver water. They could have prayed in groups of 50 or 25 or 5 or 10. They could have gotten together, but these people do not even think. Think about this. They don't even think about praying. At no time in this passage of Scripture do they consult the Lord about their lack of water. They're an unpraying people. I said this, I believe the day before yesterday. We often pray as a last resort, not as a first response. They don't even pray as a last resort. They're unpraying people. They'd rather complain to Moses than talk to God. Not only the unpraying people, but number two, they're untrusting people. Don't you love how they say this? You brought us forth to die in the wilderness. Follow carefully. Whenever they said that, they were not expressing their lack of faith in Moses. They're expressing their lack of faith in God. They're not going to the promised land because they had faith in Moses or because Moses had promised that. Remember Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows, and I am come down to bring them up out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large unto a land that floweth with milk and honey. They have to know that they're not going to the promised land through the power of Moses, but the power of God. And every time they said, well, we're just not going to make it. There's no, weren't enough graves in Egypt. You're going to brought us this forth to die in the wilderness. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt so we could die here? Why did you do this to us over and over? They said that. They're expressing their lack of trust in God himself. These people are unpraying people. These people are untrusting people. But I want you to notice this carefully. They're unsympathetic people. That first verse, the end of that first verse says, And Miriam died there and was buried there. Remember Miriam, I'm sure you do, when Moses was born, he was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they took that bassinet and they covered it with tar and pitch and they sent him floating down the Nile River. Remember, it was his big sister Miriam that followed along to make sure baby brother was okay. And when Pharaoh's daughter pulled him out of the water, it's his big sister Miriam that said, you know what, I know someone that can help you raise that little baby for you, uh, Miss Pharaoh's daughter. My mom would do a really good job and she she put her mother and her baby brother back together for the first couple of years of his life. She's been faithful to her two younger brothers, Moses and Aaron, except for one bout with her own pride a few chapters before that God had to deal with. But uh, Miriam has been with her two little brothers the entire time. And now Moses and Aaron have just said goodbye to Miriam. Their sister has died. They've buried her. And on the way back from the funeral, the children of Israel want to chide with Moses and Aaron because they don't have any water. Can I point this out? These people did not even think for a moment to give Moses and Aaron an opportunity to mourn before they started complaining. They had no sympathy for Moses at all. They had no love for him at all. They had no respect for him at all. They were more concerned with their own selfishness than they were with this man that's just lost one of the most dear people on the planet to himself. 
I have to tell you this. I can't give you a scripture verse for this. I can just give you a personal experience. It's been my estimation over the years in all the churches that we've been in that the amount of blessings that God is going to pour out on any congregation is almost directly commensurate with and directly related to the amount of love, compassion, respect, and care they pour out on their pastor. Notice these are these people, these children of Israel, they're unpraying. They're untrusting. They're unsympathetic. On the other side, we have Moses and Aaron. They could not be more polar opposites. They could not be more diametrically opposed than what they are. Because you found the children of Israel were unpraying people. When Moses and Aaron come back from Miriam's funeral, and the children of Israel say, hey, there's no water here, as if Moses didn't already know that there was no water there. They're blaming Moses for leading them there when it's not Moses who led them there. They're being led by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And if they wanted to know if God wanted them right there, all they had to do was look up and see God's manifestation of His presence right above them, sitting over this desert of Zin. What does Moses do when they say there's no water? Moses said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to convene a blue, blue ribbon commission, and we're going to get all the best engineers that we can find, and we're going to see if we can figure out a solution to this. That's not what Moses did. Moses said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to organize teams of eight-hour teams to just dig. We're going to start digging right here, right now, and we're going to dig down until we reach the water table, and that'll solve. That's not what Moses did. Moses said, oh, I know, I saw an oasis back a few miles ago, and although we would have to leave the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire behind, we ought to just move everybody back to the oasis, and then we could get some water and everything. That's not what Moses did. The very first thing that Moses did, as soon as they complained that there was no water, they left the assembly of the congregation. They went to the door of the tabernacle, and they fell on their faces and prayed. Moses and Aaron knew if you're going to find water where there is no water, God's going to have to be involved in that thing. They knew if you're going to see a miracle, God has to be responsible for the miracle. So on one side, you have the children of Israel who are unpraying people. You have the praying Moses and Aaron, don't you? On the, on the one side, you have the untrusting children of Israel. Then you have the trusting Moses and Aaron. God says, all right, water is going to come out of a rock. Now, this may come as a surprise to many of you, but water doesn't come out of rocks. That's not where it comes from. And so uh, th th they just exhibited trust. They went to the rock. They took all the congregation with them and went to this rock because God was going to send them water out of the rock. Well, of course they did that, Brother Harper. God said water was coming out of the rock. Let me ask you, if God said water was coming out of this candle before we left the night, how many of you would run and get a cup? The simple truth of the matter is they just trusted Think about this for just a moment. If Moses brings a million or two million or three million, how many there are at this time? A lot of people believe there are about three million. I'm not, I'm not quite sure about that, but it's, it's not my job to take the census of the nation of Israel. He's going to take a couple of million Israelites and stand there around a rock, and he's not supposed to do anything but speak to the rock. Did you notice that God didn't even tell Moses to, what to say to the rock? Can you ma imagine a million thirsty Israelites complaining and griping already, and Moses brings them all and stands in front of a rock and says, uh, Hey, how you doing, Mr. Rock? Uh, we 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 kind of kind of like to have some water if you don't mind. Let me ask you a question: What happens if water doesn't come out of that rock? 
How long do you think the children of Israel are going to continue to listen to Moses if water doesn't come out of that rock? How long do you think it is before they put him in a straitjacket and lock him up? How many of the children of Israel do you think, as soon as he speaks to the rock, if water doesn't come out, how many of these thirsty children of Israel are going to reach down there on the desert floor and pick up rocks and start stoning him right before your very eyes? Please, let's not lose the sight of the fact that Moses is taking a huge step of faith when he takes the entire congregation of Israel and stands them all up around a rock and just trusts that God's going to deliver water like he said he would. Notice, please, the children of Israel were untrusting people. Moses and Aaron trusted. The children of Israel were unpraying people. Moses and Aaron prayed. The children of Israel unsympathetic people. Moses and Aaron come back from the grave of their sister. She's just been buried. And their primary concern is the rest of the nation of Israel. They say, we're thirsty. Moses and Aaron don't say, give us a little while. We'll get back to you immediately. They began to pray that the Lord would provide water. Immediately they put everybody else's needs above their own. Even though their hearts were broken, they still cared for the people of Israel more than themselves. It's not hard to see who the good guys are in this story, is it? The unpraying, untrusting, unsympathetic children of Israel. The praying, trusting, and sympathetic Moses and Aaron. It's not hard to see who's wearing the white hat and who's wearing the, the black hat like the old westerns. It's not hard to pick the good guys, is it? We see into the situation, the people. Number two, the problem. Notice that first verse with me again, because there's a lot in that first verse. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin. You'll notice it does not say into the rainforest of Zin, the field of Zin, the pasture of Zin, the prairie of Zin, the oasis of Zin. It doesn't say any of those things, does it? It says it's a desert of Zin. And just to help you, in case anybody needs this little piece of advice or this piece of information, without being some kind of geographical genius, I will tell you that if it's a desert, it doesn't have water there. That's what makes it a desert in the first place, isn't it? God has led them to this place. Now, I want you to understand something, that, something carefully here. Sometimes God leads us to a place where there is no water, so we learn to trust Him for our next drink. And now they have led Moses. Moses has been led by God to lead the children of Israel to this place in the desert, and there is a problem. They don't say, Moses, there's no water here. And Moses says, well, of course there is. Just look over there. No, no. Nobody argues. The fact is there is no water there. There is a problem. If we look at the situation, we see the people. We see the problem. We also see the prescription here. Don't you love this? That God tells Moses to do four things. Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock. Take the rod, get the people, get Aaron, and speak to the rock. Four steps, and water is coming out. Take the rod, get Aaron, get the people, speak to the rock, and water is going to come out. That's the situation where we are. But notice number two, not just the situation, but notice the sin. Now, as you read, if you are one of those people that reads commentaries, you'll find a lot of commentaries will tell you that the sin that Moses commits in this passage of Scripture is that he ruins a type of Christ. First, let's acknowledge the fact that the books of, both books of Corinthians describe the Lord as the rock in the wilderness. The rock was only smitten once. He wasn't smitten twice. So, in reality, Moses did, in fact, ruin a type of Christ by smiting the rock the second time. However, 
Moses did not wake up that morning and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show God what for. I'm going to just ruin a type of Christ. He had no idea that's, not, that's what he was doing. You know what Moses' sin here is? It's not that he ruined a type of Christ. Moses' sin here is that he's just disobedient. See, if I take this passage and make it that God judged Moses for ruining a type of Christ, it doesn't apply to anybody alive on planet Earth. But if it's about his disobedience, it applies to every single one of us, doesn't it? And all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness. All of it. Notice carefully, Moses is going to sin. Number one, we saw the situation. Number two, let's look at the sin real quick. Three things about his sin. First, his temptation is available. Now, I know there's only 20-some people here in the auditorium, but I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm going to ask you to answer out loud. Now, I understand that there are preachers out there, and I am not one of these, that will ask congregations questions so they can stump you and make themselves look smart. I'm not interested in doing that. If I ask you a question and ask you to respond out loud, the first answer you think of is going to be the right answer. So if I said... Is today Wednesday, yes or no? Yes. Most of you responded. A couple of you are sitting there thinking, I know it's Wednesday, but also know he's tricking me. No, I'm not tricking you, I promise. The first answer you think of is going to be the right answer. So let me ask you this question. Did God love Moses? Yes or no? Yes. You shouldn't even have to think about that. There, there's no possible way that can be a trick question. Number two, does God want what is best for Moses? Yes or no? Number three, does God know the end from the beginning? Does God know what's going to happen next, yes or no? Yes. Okay, so if those three things are true, and they are true, don't answer this one. Why does God begin verse 8 the way he begins it? If God loves Moses, and he does, and God wants what's best for Moses, and he does, and if God knows what's going to happen next, and he does, then why does he begin verse 8 with these words, take the rod? Why doesn't God say, all right, Moses, this one time, since I know what's going to happen next, why don't you leave the rod in your tent? I know you usually have it with you, but today, just leave it in your tent. Why doesn't he say, why don't you hand it to Aaron? Why doesn't he say, why don't you take 50 steps outside of camp and dig a hole and put the rod in there and then go and talk to the rock? Why does not God not tell Moses, who's not going to need his rod when he goes to the rock, he's supposed to speak to the rock, why isn't he telling him to leave it behind? Why would God tell Moses who he loves, who he wants the best, for whom he wants the best, and, and God knowing what's going to happen next, why doesn't he give him a warning and say, leave the rod behind? I'll give you the best answer I can possibly give you on this. Because God never promised Moses, and he never promised us a life without temptation. Moses' temptation is available. Right in his hand is the rod that is literally going to ruin his ministry. He'll never lead the children of Israel into the promised land like God called him to do on top of that mountain in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. Moses is going to ruin his ministry with the rod in his hand, but God never promised that we would live a life without temptation. 
Wouldn't it have been simple for an almighty God, the moment that you trusted Christ as your personal Savior, to put you inside a bubble that completely separated you from the world and kept you from every temptation? Of course he could have done that. Wouldn't it have been simple for Almighty God, the moment that you get saved, to immediately just take you onto heaven so you never have to sin one time after your salvation? Of course he could have done that. But God never promised anyone a life without temptation. Now, he made us lots of promises about temptation. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18, in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the fillings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, and yet without sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. He did not, uh, not allow you to be suf uh, suffer you to be tempted above that which you're able, but God is faithful, who also with the temptation uh, maketh a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. That which is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh cometh the world, even our faith. God did not promise us a life without temptation, but he did promise to understand when we're going through temptation. He did promise to encourage us when we're facing temptation. He did promise to control the severity of the temptation. He did promise to make you greater than your temptation. He did promise to give you the faith to overcome your temptation, but he never promised us a life without temptation. Anybody who's preaching that the Christian life is nothing but hunky-dory, peachy king floating down the river enjoying everything because nothing bad is ever going to happen to you hasn't read very much of their Bible. The truth is, temptation is all around us. Even Moses, this great servant of the Lord, God didn't take the rod out of his hand. God gave him the opportunity to overcome the temptation to use the rod but he didn't take it out of his hand. By the way, we have parents out there saying things like this, talking about their children. Well, they're going to be tempted eventually. Might as well let them be tempted when they're 13. They've not thought about picking up their child's cell phone. They've not talked, uh, even thought about looking at their internet history. They've not thought about uh, guiding them and guarding them from their friends. They've not thought for the, a moment about limiting their social media contacts. They've not thought about any of those things. Well, if they're going to get tempted eventually, they might as well get tempted when they're 13. First, a 13-year-old is not nearly as equipped to handle a temptation as an 18, 19, 20, or 21-year-old is. Secondly, now I have to be careful. And I have to, I'm going to be honest, I am 58 years old. I've been telling people and, and since the day I turned 58 that I'm 59. I always add the next year because it doesn't bother me, but it bothers my wife. She thinks that even though she's 29 that she's now married to an old man. We've been married. This is our 38th year of marriage, but she's only 29, so you do the math there. But I, there's certain things that you can't say when you're a young whippersnapper like I am. And I don't feel that way anymore, but uh, some, some guys think I am. But there's certain things that you can say when you're older. My father-in-law is 85 years of age. And when you're 85 years of age, you can pretty much say anything that you want to say. All right? And my father-in-law, if you said to him, well, they're going to get tempted eventually. Might as well let them get tempted when they're 13. My father-in-law, not me now, my father-in-law would look at you and say, are you an idiot in any other area? Now, I didn't say that. Don't quote me, quote him. But the truth of the matter is, you have to have, to have a couple of bricks short of a load 
to think a child is ready for the temptations that this world has for him at the age of 13, 14, or 15 years of age. Right. We're putting temptation in, in front of them every single day of their life and not doing anything to help them overcome it. Notice, please, his temptation was available. Secondly, there's something interesting here. His temper is apparent. Moses gets all the children of Israel and he gathers them all around this rock and he stands up in front of them with the rod in his hand. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I can picture Moses standing there with his grip getting tighter and tighter on that rod, looking out at all of these people that instead of loving him, instead of praying for him, instead of encouraging him when his sister died, are now complaining and griping once again like they always do because they don't have any water. It didn't even occur to them to pray. And you can see Moses as he holds that rod up above his head and he says, Hear now, you rebels! I don't think he said it like some of the modern-day TV preachers. Hear now, you rebels. I don't think he said it like that. I think Moses is a little mad here. I think his temper is apparent. Brother Harper, how do you know his temper is apparent? Because Moses is very careful that every time that God does a miracle, Moses gives God the credit. But you won't find Moses giving God the credit for water coming out of this rock at all. By the way, every pastor that I know during their ministry has had a Moses moment like this one right here. Someone comes to your pastor's office and you and your wife have been fighting every single day for the past three years. You haven't had a day of peace. You haven't had a single day of tranquility. And you've tried everything that you think you can try. And so you're finally going to break down and go and talk to your pastor. So you go to pastor's office and you sit down and you say, Preacher, listen, we've got problems. We have no peace in our family. We fight over every single thing. Whatever comes up, we find a way to fight about it. And preacher, can you help us? Now, I know your pastor well enough to know that he's not going to pick up a book off of his desk written by Dr. Phil and tell you how to solve your marital problems. I know he's going to open up his Bible primarily to Ephesians chapter 5, and he's going to look at that wife and he's going to say, Listen, wife, it is your responsibility to be in subjection unto your husband as unto the Lord. And while he's saying that, the husband is going to be sitting there, and down deep in his soul he's saying, Amen. And you preach it, brother. Then he's going to stop and look at that husband. And he's going to say, And husband, it's your responsibility to love your wife as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And that wife is going to be sitting there saying, Well, praise the Lord. I'm glad he's preaching to somebody else other than me for a while. And after counseling you, you're going to start walking out. And as you're walking out, you're going to say something like this. The husband is going to look at the wife. And for a, a moment, there's going to be some tranquility. The husband's going to say, Phew, that was a little harsh, don't you think? She's going to say, yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Let me tell you two things about Bible advice. Number one, Bible advice is almost never the easy advice. Number two, Bible advice is always the right advice. Amen. But for the first few moments, you're in complete agreement. The rainbows have lit up the sky. There's sunbeams coming through the clouds of your marriage because you found something that you can agree on. You can both agree that the pastor's advice was way too harsh. 
So you go home, you get on the internet, you download the latest PDF by Dr. Phil. You try to put all of his little principles into practice. For about a day and a half, you kind of get along, and then it results in World War III again. Now you're fighting, now you're arguing again. Two weeks later, you come back to the pastor's office. You say, preacher, listen, we still have problems. We still have problems in our marriage. We fight all the time. And pastor says, well, did you, and then you say this, we've only found one thing that we've agreed on in the last three years. You don't tell him that the one thing you've agreed on is you think he's wrong. And, but we still have these problems. And pastor looks at you and says, did you do what I told you to do two weeks ago? And you say, well, we thought that was a little harsh. So we tried it our own way. Now, even though your pastor and actually no other pastor that I know would do this, he would like to, down deep in his soul, he would like to reach out with his left hand and lay it gently on the right side of your neck. Then reach out with his left hand and lay it gently on the right side of your neck. And then squeeze and say, here now, rebel. I can preach it. I can teach it. I can live it. I can counsel it. But I can't come home and make you do it. Isn't that what Moses is saying here? Here now, rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? The term here is almost like a parent bringing a glass of water to their thirsty child late at night. You ever noticed how when it's time to go to bed that your children become so thirsty? And it said, do we have to come and fetch you water out of the rock and give it to you? Why are we still treating you like children? Why didn't you pray? Why didn't you trust why didn't you just have confidence in Almighty God, you bunch of rebels? Moses' temper is apparent. His temptation is available. But thirdly, and this is so big to me, his teammate was absent. Remember what God said in Exodus, uh, in, Numbers, uh, in, in, in verse 8 of Numbers chapter 20? He said, take the rod and gather the, the assembly together, thou and Aaron, thy brother. Remember this in verse 9. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. Remember this. As Moses is standing there with everybody standing around him, Aaron is standing beside of him. So when Moses lifts up his hand, with that rod in his hand, with his knuckles turning white with his grip, with that look of anger on his face. And he says, here now, rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock. And Moses begins to bring that rod down and hit the rock. Let me ask you a question. Where was Aaron? Why doesn't Aaron say, <coughs> excuse me, Moses, uh, hold on. Last time you were supposed to hit the rock, this time you're supposed to speak to it. Why doesn't Aaron do what he did in Exodus chapter 17 when the children of Israel were fighting the Amalekites? As Joshua led the armies down at the bottom of the mountain, Moses stood on the side, on the hillside. Remember, when Moses' hands were in the air, the battle went well. When Moses' hands would go down, the battle would go poorly. So it was Aaron and Hur that stood on either side of Moses and held his hands up in the air. So when Moses lifted up that rod to smite the rock, why didn't Aaron step in and say, Stop! Moses, that's not what God said. Aaron didn't say a word. His teammate was absent. I'm going to tell you something, Christian. 
and I'm not promoting anybody be a, a busybody or the, the, the church police or anything like that, but I will tell you this. If you see a Christian brother or sister about ready to ruin their life, their testimony, or their family, and you stand by and say nothing because you want to one day be able to say, yeah, I saw that was going to happen. You're just as guilty as Aaron is. You're just standing and watching it happen. But Brother Harper, if Aaron had jumped in and stopped Moses from hitting that rock, don't you think it would have embarrassed Moses? First, let me say this. Absolutely, it would have embarrassed Moses in front of everybody. But you answer this for me. A few years later, as Moses and Aaron stood on the other side of the Jordan River and yelled on that last trip around the walls of Jericho and saw the walls come down, don't you think Moses would have looked at his older brother and said, Hey, big brother, thanks for not letting me hit that rock in the wilderness. His teammate was absent. Notice, number one, we saw the situation, the people, the problem, the prescription. Number two, we saw the sin. His temptation was available. His temper is apparent. His teammate is absent. Number three, watch this. This will be very quick. The supply. Let's assume, now preachers have certain ways of putting things. Sometimes it bothers me the way uh, preachers put things. And I, I know good preachers that say this all the time, but preachers will always say something like this, especially a real good friend of mine will say, let's go back to the desert of Zin in our mind's eye. I don't know what that is. I'm sorry. I don't want to be ugly or negative or anything. I don't know what your mind's eye is. I know what they're saying. So let's go back there in our imagination. Well, why not say, go back there in your imagination? It isn't, if it means the same thing, why not use something that people know what they're talking about? Let's go back to the desert of Zen in our mind's eye, just to say it, just to be, 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 be one of those cool preachers. All right? well, here we are. We're all at Central Baptist Church, and the Lord lifts us up and transports us through space and time and here we come walking up to the desert of Zin. And there in front of us is a bearded man with gray hair and a stick in his hand. His brother standing right beside of him. And millions of Israelites standing around in a circle with a rock right there. We being typical Americans, we get there and we start elbowing our way. And we get all the way to the front. And just as we get to the front, we see, I believe it's verse 11, take place. And Moses lifted up his rod. It's verse, uh, you know, it's verse 11. Moses lifted up his rod. Uh, 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 lift up his rod. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, lift up his hand with, the, uh, with his rod and smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly. If we saw that with our own eyes, what would we have thought? Every one of us, whether you're listening at home or sitting here in the auditorium, if we walk up in the middle of the wilderness, no water anywhere, and saw Moses bring that rod down, hits the rock twice, and water appears out of this rock. And not just a little water, but a flood of water appearing out of this rock. What would we have said, every one of us? Wow. God sure is using Moses. Did you see the miracle that Moses just did? Moses must be living right at the foot of the cross because somehow, somewhere along the way, we have become convinced that God only blesses with bigness. That if, if a, a congregation has 30,000 people in it, then God must be blessing it. Listen carefully. God blesses one thing. That's it, one thing. 
This book right here. If it's in this book, God is going to bless it. If it's against this book, God isn't going to bless it. I don't care how many people are there. I don't care how much money is involved. Makes no difference whatsoever. As A.W. Tozer once said, preach the truth whether it fills the house or whether it empties it. It's just that simple. But we would have looked just like everybody else would have looked and said, wow, 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 did you see what God just did through Moses? See, God didn't send water out of that rock because of Moses. God sent water out of that rock in spite of Moses. God sent water out of that rock because he always intended to send water out of the rock. You can't say that you believe that Moses ruined the type of Christ when the type would have been for Moses to speak to the rock and not acknowledge that God intended for water to come out of the rock in the very first place. This was always God's plan. Now here's Moses with water flowing out of the rock and everybody going, wow, Moses has done another miracle. No, no. Moses has just ended his effective ministry right here, right now truth is you come to church, you have 300 people here, have the songs of Zion, maybe 400. Songs of Zion sung, word of God is preached, wonderful fellowship, and you go home and you turn on your television set and you see a guy that wouldn't know a Bible message if it hit him in the head, standing up in front of 30,000 people in a remodeled NBA basketball stadium that has said that he's not sure that if you reject Christ you'll go to hell. He doesn't believe that abortion or homosexuality are even sins anymore. I'm here to tell you that's not what this church believes. It's not what your pastor believes. But you're going to sit there and say, you know, I disagree with what he's saying, but look at that crowd. God sure is blessing. Don't we do that? Wouldn't that have been exactly what we would have done here if we saw water spewing out of a rock after Moses hit it? We'd have wanted to touch Moses' rod. We'd have wanted to shake his hand, have him sign our Bible. We'd go online and offer donations if we saw this happen before our eyes. This isn't the result of Moses' faithfulness. It's the result of God's faithfulness. Notice, we saw the situation. We saw the sin. We saw the supply. Number four, we see the shame. Now, I want you to notice there is a time lapse between the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12. Let's look at verse 11 again together. And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly. Now watch what it says. And the congregation, past tense, drank, and their beasts also. That means two million Israelites, maybe more, drank. If there are two million Israelites, there are multiple million animals. Drank. <coughs> and then verse 12 happens. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. Did you notice that with me? The Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. Because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. <coughs> Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation to the land which I have given them. Moses and Aaron will never set foot in their natural life in the promised land. Because of this. <coughs> you know what Moses did to miss the promised land? Think about this for just a second. <coughs> Did he uh, not keep the Sabbath day? Did he have another God above God? Did he make a graven image? Did he kill, steal, commit adultery? Did he covet? Did he bear false witness? No. 
You know what Moses did to miss the promised land? Let me illustrate it. <coughs> Excuse my cough. He hit a rock with a stick. You've seen that commandment. <coughs> Thou shalt not hit a rock with a stick. You know that one, right? That's the 11th commandment. It's not even in there, is it? You know what Moses did to miss the promised land? He just disobeyed God. Do you know even after Moses hits that rod with his stick, he's still, for lack of a better term, the best Christian in the nation of Israel? He still walks closer to the Lord than anybody else in the nation? What did Moses do to miss the promised land? This, right here, one more time. Do you know what Aaron did to miss the promised land? Now, you have to watch closely to get this one. Here it is. This is what Aaron did. Do you know in this passage of Scripture, Aaron does everything that he's told to do? But to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. He didn't hit a rock with a stick. He doesn't express his temper to the children of Israel. Aaron just stood there and did nothing. You want to know the scary part of this passage of Scripture, Christian? God held Aaron every bit as responsible as he held Moses. When Aaron, Aaron's only guilt, his only failure, was he didn't want to get involved. Oh, I admit we have way too many people that are out there playing internet policemen. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you and your friends and your family and your fellow church members and you watch them going in the wrong direction and you say, well, I didn't want to offend anyone. Don't you think it had been better if Aaron had offended Moses? Moses is going to miss the promised land. Now, please understand, because of the way we often preach it, some people might assume that that means he's going to miss heaven. No, nothing could be further from the truth. He's going to miss the land of Canaan is what he's going to miss. And so is Aaron. They're never going to get there because of one sin. The best Christian will die on the other side. The second best Christian will die before that. Why? Just because he disobeyed God. You know what our problem is, Christian? We're very seldom responding to conviction. We very seldom just realize the truth of the Word of God in that we're all just a bunch of rock hitters. If God would judge Moses, don't you think He's going to judge me and you? Now, I wonder what would have happened, and we'll never know. What if Moses had hit the rock and then immediately fell on his knees and says, Lord, I'm sorry. He probably did what you and I do all the time. He probably said, because this man of God, you know he had to be convicted. He probably says, mm, I shouldn't have hit that rock, but at least I prayed more than they did. At least I trusted more than they did. At least I was more sympathetic than they were. At least I talked to God more than that family does. And he probably stood there and defended himself and convinced himself that he didn't need to be convicted. 
when what he really should have done is fallen on his face before God and confessed. Would he have gone to the promised land if he'd have done that? I can't answer that. Here's what I can tell you. If he'd have confessed, he'd have been forgiven. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That would have happened. Whether the ramifications would have still been there or not, I don't know. But I do know this. Moses missed the promised land because of one sin too many. And it didn't matter how many gold stars were on his chart. Just like it doesn't matter how many gold stars are on my chart or your chart. Doesn't matter what you've done for the Lord. We need to be broken when we realize we're just a whole bunch of rock hitters. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.